everybody. Welcome to the hour earlier show. Don't know how many of you are with me here, but um, that's not going to stop our fun. We will be discussing many issues today, so I will weigh in on the Amazon expose that dropped like three or four days ago. Haven't had the opportunity to uh, break this down for y'all yet. Um, It's kind of wild. It's kind of wild, and credit to Ken Klippenstein for getting the news on this. This is really something else. We have Bernie Sanders letting the media know the next fight that he's going to take on in the next reconciliation bill. This is a really, really, really interesting uh, move that he's doing. I'll break that down for you as well. Sean Hannity fear mongers about the border. It's kind of incredible how he totally flipped his ideology and his perspective in order to try to own Biden. Um, Although I guess it, It was pretty predictable because Hannity's a hack of all hacks. Um, Lil Nas X released a shoe that's driving Christian conservatives out of their minds. We'll talk about that. Um, More on the filibuster, more on COVID-19. We got some bombshell news on the origins of COVID-19 from a former CDC head. Um, And I got a lot more. Ro Khanna, a congressman berated tech CEOs for not censoring more. So sit back, relax. We got a we got a long one today. We have a long show for you today. I have more stories that I know what to do with. So anyway, here we go. Let's get started. So three or four days ago, we got some giant news about Amazon. This is from friend of the show Ken Klippenstein. He's reporting for the Intercept. It says documents show Amazon is aware drivers pee in bottles and even defecate in route, despite company denial. If employees actually had to pee in bottles, Amazon said, nobody would work for us. That's a lie. 
Um, so, according to a number of workers, there's actually like implied threats where if they don't deliver, if they fail to deliver a certain number of packages, their job is at risk. And the only way they could really deliver all the packages that they need to deliver is if they never have a bathroom break. And so there's been a number of instances of, you know, trucks coming back uh, from their routes and there's a bottle of piss that's left behind. In some instances, there's a bag with crap in it that's left behind. And Amazon came out guns blazing trying to deny it, trying to go aggressive after lefties on Twitter, including left-wing Congress people and senators, and they ended up face-planting. Because, in fact, it may be the case that Amazon's aggression on Twitter, playing defense for their terrible business practices, led to workers seeing what they were doing, and then those workers reaching out to Ken Klippenstein and giving him the information. Because work, I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was working there and I see executives deny it and I know what's going on at the company, first thing I'm going to do is try to find a back channel to uh, some sort of principled, moral, investigative journalist and give them the scoop. And so this is where we are. The year is 2021, and this is where we are with labor rights. There are implied threats that you need to piss in a bottle and crap in a bag to get all of your work done. Can't even take the time to take a bathroom break. So, I mean, listen, this gets back to, you know, exactly what's going on in Bessemer, Alabama right now, which is they're attempting to, to unionize, and there's going to be a vote on it. And as Crystal Ball pointed out, if that vote fails, understand it's not a strike against unionization. If that vote fails, it's because there were more people who were intimidated that they might lose their job if they vote for unionization because these are the tactics that Amazon uses. This is what they know. You know, this is what giant corporations do. They flex power over their workers. And it's an absolute shame. Now, by the way, one of the Amazon executives on Twitter um, went after Ro Khanna. So, uh, actually, first they went after Bernie Sanders. They said, like, oh, Bernie Sanders... Oftentimes, we call ourselves the Bernie Sanders of the, of the corporate world. This is what the Amazon executive said. Because Bernie only talks about $15 minimum wage in health care. We actually delivered. <laughs> so Rokana jumped in, and Rokana was like, hey, idiot, the only reason you guys are paying $15 an hour is because of me and Bernie. They proposed the Stop Bezos Act, and Jeff Bezos got scared that this bill that they crafted – was going to gain bipartisan support and pass, and it was getting a lot of media. She was like, whoa, 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 okay, okay, I'll pay 15 I'll pay $15 an hour. Just get off my ass, please. So they tried to present it as if it was this decision that they made a long time ago because they're kind, benevolent, and altruistic. And the fact of the matter is the same guys that they're attacking are the guys who are responsible for prodding them to pay the $15 an hour. So, I mean, listen, that just says everything about how dishonest and weaselly and slimy they are. And so I 100% think that the Amazon workers should be unionized. Listen, that would be a game changer. It really would. The other thing that would be a game changer is the PRO Act, which effectively bans right-to-work states. Really, those states are right-to-work for less because 
they're non-union, and so workers make over $1,000 less per year on average. They have worse benefits. And so the PRO Act would be gigantic. If we get that passed, the economy would fundamentally transform, um, and the union, the Amazon workers unionizing would be a game changer as well. But, you know, unfortunately, I don't know the likelihood of the union effort succeeding because of the intimidations and the threats from corporate higher-ups. Even though technically it's illegal to do this union busting, they get away with it. And if there's any punishment, it's the tiniest slap on the wrist, so they're still incentivized to do the union busting. So it really is a damn shame. It's depressing. I really hope that uh, the effort succeeds in Alabama for the Amazon workers. Imagine all the Amazon workers. It's an, I think Amazon's the number one employer, maybe behind the U.S. military, but like the number one employer in the U.S. If you unionize them, I'm telling you, I know I've used this word a number of times before, but it really is a game changer. Right now, I think it's only 6% of the private workforce that's unionized, only 6%. When that rate of unionization was much higher, we had what was called the golden age of economic expansion in the U.S. There's a, a direct correlation between unionization rates and health of the working class and the middle class. And um, now that's not the only factor, of course, it, because, you know, you look at the post-World War II time period, we were the only economy that was left standing. Europe was totally obliterated. And so we were the only game in town. So we started exporting, we started manufacturing. And, uh, you know, we had the benefit of a, a world that was tumultuous, but, but it's also the case that we had strong unions, which led to a strong middle class, um, which is why it was the golden age of economic expansion. So we know what to do. We know what the answers are. We can get back to a time and a place where the working class is thriving, but yes, it requires unionization, more than 6% of the private workforce being unionized. You know, it requires um, a redistribution of wealth. That's another thing. Uh, up until, I believe, the years 19, from 1978 until today, the top 1% has effectively stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90%. That's how much the rules are rigged. That's how much the lack of unionization has hurt. Again, it's not the only factor, but it's one of the important factors. Um, if you just kept the same pay ratio, average worker, to top 1%, as we had in the post-World War II period, and had that today, the bottom 90% would be $47 trillion richer. That's the equivalent of over $1,000 a month more going to every single American in the bottom 90%. So that's how much of a class war there's been and how much of a redistribution to the top 1% there's been. And there are ways to fight back against this. You've got to get the money out of politics. You've got to raise the minimum wage. You've got to bring back unions. Um, and you have to get us to a place where we have a thriving working class. And, um, you know, unionization would be the beginning of that. So, again, I'm rooting for those workers in Bessemer, Alabama, because if you don't bring about that change, this stuff is going to continue. And then Amazon will lie about it relentlessly. But this stuff is going to continue. Zero human decency and dignity, having to piss and shit in a bottle and a bag as you're doing your job. Nobody should have to do that in the year 2021. I mean, nobody should have had to do that ever during the Industrial Revolution with the child labor and things of that nature. It was going to happen. You know, things like this were going to happen. But there's no excuse for that today. None whatsoever. So unionize the workforce, pass the PRO Act, and that's the only way we're going to get reasonable labor standards. There's never been a better pitch for unions than this story. 
Because this is what happens when the higher-ups, the executives, the corporate heads, the owner class, when they have too much power. This is what happens. They're not, they're not intelligent, fair, rational, reasonable with that power. They abuse it, and they abuse it for the bottom line. So you can get your Amazon package an hour and 20 minutes earlier. Somebody's got a shit in a bag. That's a fundamentally degrading experience. So anyway, credit to the brave workers who stepped forward and gave this information to Ken Klippenstein, and uh, solidarity to the workers in Bessemer, Alabama, who are attempting to unionize and fight back against abuses exactly like this. It really is the answer. Now we just have to fight for it. Next. Let's talk about Bernard Sanders. Here we go. Bernie has picked his next fight. Let's take a look at it. This is according to Politico. Bernie Sanders wants to make sweeping changes to Medicare and prescription drug policy and evade the filibuster to do it. The Vermont Independent is urging his party to force Medicare to enter into negotiations with drug companies and use that revenue to pay for a huge expansion of the entitlement program. Sanders, who chairs the Senate Budget Committee, is aiming to lower Medicare's eligibility age from 65 to 55 or 60 years old, and expand the program to cover dental work, glasses, eye surgeries, as well as hearing aids. Those major changes would be rolled into a massive infrastructure bill Democrats are starting to craft that's likely to include a tax policy that's likely to, inclu- to include to tax policy as well. I think they have a typo in there. Sanders said in an interview on Friday that Congress's recent $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief measure was an enormous step forward on the immediate challenges facing the the country, but that now we have to look at the structural long-term problems facing our people. Okay, so Bernie Sanders expressing a similar criticism to ones that, you know, we've made, which is the problem with this COVID relief bill is that it was a one-shot of adrenaline, and there is nothing recurring in there. You know, he didn't raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, 67% popular issue, didn't do that, didn't do the $2,000 check, did $1,400 check, but again, nothing's recurring. There is no recurring monthly check, for example, which would have been a game changer. So that's Bernie's criticism of it as well. Now, some people might say, why would you put this in a bill with tax policy stuff and infrastructure stuff? Aren't you putting too much stuff into one bill? And the answer to that is no, because the way the system works is if it goes through regular order right now, because we have the filibuster, you need 60 votes in order to pass it. You're not going to get 60 votes for anything. Literally nothing. The Republicans will not allow anything through, okay? So that means you have to go through what's called budget reconciliation, which is a process by which you can actually pass something with 51 votes. Um, Now, the problem with that is you only get, actually, I think it's two cracks hit it per year. If they do a reform, they can make it three per year, but right now it's two per year. So whatever you actually want to get through, you have to jam it into this one bill and then hold the Democratic caucus. And so that's why there are talks about some tax stuff, some infrastructure stuff, and Medicare stuff being in the next bill. Uh, Yes, it's messy, but this is the only way to get anything done unless we reform the filibuster or abolish the filibuster. If you totally get rid of the filibuster, everything would be 51 votes to get by, simple majority. That's perfectly logical. It would make sense to do it, although I think when the Republicans are in power, they would be even more dangerous with that being the case. Um, 
But if you reform the filibuster and make them talk, then they would simply be able to filibuster fewer things, the Republicans would. And so more Democratic priorities would get through. But right now we still have the filibuster, and so they're trying to go around it by using reconciliation, and so you have to jam everything into, like, one giant bill. Now, Bernie, I think, sort of a little bit messed up on this, okay? Now, I get it. You and I both know the answer is Medicare for all. We've got to get Medicare for all. But Biden is a hard no on Medicare for all. Now, he shouldn't be, and we shouldn't let that stand. You know, he's against 80% of his own party's voters. That's unacceptable. We have a pandemic in the country right now, tens of millions of people without health insurance. To be against Medicare for all is flat unacceptable. But having said that, knowing we don't have the numbers to go into that fight and win it, what's the next best thing? Well, the next best thing is similar to what Bernie's trying to do, right? So hold Biden to some of his more progressive views, like when he says, oh, I want a public option, right? Or when he says, I think he said he wants to lower the Medicare age to 60. He said that when he was on the campaign trail. So Bernie's coming in saying, well, 55 or 60. Let's put this in the bill. Now, right off the bat, you messed up because you said 55 or 60. That's like going in to buy a car and saying, I'll pay five grand under the sticker price or I'll pay the sticker price. Of course, the salesman's going to be like, okay, the sticker price. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, I'll give it to you for five grand under the sticker price. No, you said you'd also pay the sticker price. They're going to give you the sticker price. So Biden and other Democrats are going to be like, you said 60. Okay, so maybe we'll do 60. But really, that's not even the reality because you guys know this. Negotiation 101 is you have to come in with a hard line. So what Bernie had to do is Bernie had to say, um, we're going to lower the Medicare age to and if you oppose this, I'm going to block the bill no matter what the hell's in it. I don't care what else is in it. I don't care if it's the best infrastructure bill ever. I don't care if it's, uh, you know, if you have amazing tax policy that raises taxes on the wealthy and raises the capital gains rate, for example. I don't care. Don't care even a little bit. I'm going to block it. I'm going to block it unless and until you lower the Medicare age to 50. That's what you need to do. And we're, like he says, we're going to make it so that Medicare can negotiate with Big Pharma to get cheaper drugs. Just so you understand, the U.S., I think, is the only developed country that whatever the pharmaceutical industry tells the U.S. government to pay, tells Medicare to pay, they just pay it. So Big Pharma rips us off massively. If you allow Medicare to negotiate for drug prices, there's billions of dollars in savings because they're ripping us off right now. They're price gouging us right now. All the government has to do is negotiate, and then we save billions of dollars. So Bernie's saying, do that. It's a crime we don't already do that. And then use the savings from that to pay for the expansion of Medicare. But I think he should say 50 and up, and I'm going to block everything if you don't agree. Now, what would happen in a situation like that? Everybody would panic. The media would attack them, although they're attacking Bernie on a strength because it's a very popular idea. Lowering the Medicare age polls at like 77%, incredibly popular. So go ahead, attack them. doesn't matter. But ultimately what would happen is you would get a situation where Joe Biden, Joe Manchin, Bernie Sanders, they'd have to get in a room together. They have to sit down and talk. They have to negotiate. And if Bernie came in at a hard line, 50, 50, age 50 and up, or I'll block everything, well, then maybe you get 55 in that scenario. You know, maybe they, okay, Bernie, we can't do 50. We'll do 55. Or we'll do 60. That's, see, that's the way to actually get the 55 or 60 is to come in at 50 and draw a hard line. But he's not doing that. Up front, he's saying, oh, 55 or 60. And then they're going to say, how about you go fuck yourself? And he's going to go, okay, I'll still vote for it. And therein lies the problem with the Democrats. I mean, listen, don't get it twisted. I don't want to take agency and responsibility away from Joe Biden and Joe Manchin because they're bad up front, right? But the problem with the left flank is exactly this. 
it's like when Rokana sent that letter and said, $15 an hour, we want that in the, you know, the reconciliation bill, the COVID relief bill. And um, they wrote a letter, a bunch of progressives wrote a letter to Biden, and then they took it out, and then Rokana gave an interview and was like, I'll still vote for the bill anyway. Well, then you weren't making a demand. You weren't making a demand. You were writing a letter. Like, there's no bite to what you're asking for. Why would he listen to you? Why would he listen to you if you say, I'll do what you want anyway, but I just want to let you know that I want things a little bit different. No, if you want things a little bit different, you have to demand it. And there were more people who who nominally could have drawn the line on $15 minimum wage than people who would draw the line on being against $15 minimum wage. And by the way, make them take that stand. Go ahead. If you say we're blocking it for $15 minimum wage, and Joe Biden's like, I'm blocking it against it, well, he takes even more in popularity because his own people in his own state are like, we want the $15 minimum wage. So you have to fight. You have to fight. And they're never willing to fight. The only person who's willing to block a bill is Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and the eight idiot Democrats who are corrupt who voted against the $15 minimum wage. Those are the only ones that have any spine, that have any backbone. And so, listen, this is, I know they're not going to listen, but this is me begging the left. This is me begging Bernie. This is me begging the progressive Congress people. For the love of God, you have to get more intelligent and you have to get more ruthless. I mean, it, it's pathetic watching how weak you guys are. You float a good idea and say, well, maybe I'm in favor of this. No, it's no maybe. No, like, we could do 55 or 60. No. Say 50 and up, and I'll block it if you don't do it. And that, then maybe you get 55. You can't treat Joe Biden and Joe Manchin like good faith actors. Well, maybe they'll hear my concerns. They don't want to hear your fucking concerns. They don't give a fuck. And they're also serving corporate donors. You know this. So anyway, I think, I think this is a mistake for Bernie to be this weak coming in. You know, I mean, it's, it's preposterous that we're not talking about Medicare for all when we have a pandemic. Tens of millions of people with no insurance, over 500,000 Americans dead. To not talk about Medicare, medical bills, one of the top causes of bankruptcy. To not talk about Medicare for all right now is criminal. It's criminal. But this is where we are. So at least, at least fight in a way that's going to get you even the bare minimum, you know? And um, it, it doesn't look likely. Now, I bet I, it is true, though, that the, whatever the infrastructure bill he's proposing, we'll go through it provision by provision when it comes out, when the specifics of it come out, just like we've done that with the tax bill. Um, I'm sure they're going to be good. They're going to be relatively good bills. But, yes, if all you have is reconciliation and you only get two or three cracks at it, Jam as much shit in that bill as possible, and progressives need to be willing to tank the whole fucking thing. Because you know what? These bills are must-pass bills. So since they're must-pass bills, they are forced to take your concerns seriously if you're willing to block it. So, fucking Christ, man. Grow a spine, all of you. Bernie's idea is good, but it's already watered down, and he's already coming in weak. And so I've, I've, just, I've seen this script one too many times. And the script is, they're going to they're gonna boot this from the bill because he came in weak. They're going to boot it from the bill. So they don't like you, and you shouldn't like them. You should be all business dealing with these scoundrels, you know? And unfortunately, I don't see that. I see people treating, you know, Joe Biden like a good faith actor, Joe Manchin like a good faith actor, um, and ultimately getting us less than the bare minimum. And I think that's unacceptable. So this hollowed-out, sad party. It's really gross to watch. They have control of every level of government, and uh, they're doing 
some bullshit, massively watered-down hybrid of, like, 80% Ronald Reagan and 20% FDR. Like, the veneer of a drop of New Deal politics and then, like, everything else, neoliberal corporatism. And so if that's what the Democratic Party stands for, it doesn't stand for much. And that's really not popular. And you should be going all in on the New Deal politics. And then, by the way, you would win in a crushing fashion in every election from here on out, as far as the eye can see, because that's what happened with FDR. But that would require actually believing in something and actually not being corrupt and actually fighting for it, which I know is a big ask. Okay. Time to talk about Sean Hannity, baby. Chief Fox News hack Sean Hannity uh, went on air and decided to attack Biden over the border. This is the new big scandal. Every media outlet is talking about it. Chaos at the border, crisis at the border. Well, here's Sean Hannity weighing in, and then we'll break it down. Tonight we are witnessing what is an unmitigated disaster at our southern border, and you will pay the full price. This is a full-blown crisis. It is a humanitarian crisis. It is a national security crisis. It is a health and safety for you and your family crisis. But instead of tackling this crisis head-on, well, the Biden administration, they have been and are waging nothing but a PR war, all in an attempt to cover up what our eyes show us. That means the truth. So much for being transparent. Now, as we speak, the administration is blocking almost all media access to the Border Patrol and migrant detention facilities. The situation is so dire now, we have officials risking their jobs. You know, real whistleblowers, not hearsay anonymous, non-whistleblowers, but real whistleblowers, they're sounding the alarm, brand new explosive breaking report from the Epic Times. One Border Patrol agent speaking, obviously on the condition of anonymity for fear of the repercussions, now providing what is the most graphic description to date of the conditions at his migrant facility. His words, quote, the family unit holding, holding cells, they smell like urine and vomit. Fights break out in the unaccompanied minor cells, scabies, lice, and the flu and COVID-19 are running rampant. According to the agent, up to 80 individuals are now squeezed into each holding cell, and that, quote, Any diseases that are in there, it's being kept in there like a Petri dish, and the smell is overwhelming. Now up to 50% of migrants are testing positive for COVID-19 in some areas, and meanwhile, one or two agents are reportedly left to control as many as 694 people, as we told you last night, at least three to 500 at one point during a shift. Now that means there is no effective way to prevent sexual assault, violence, theft or any other criminal activity among bad actors that are inside the migrant population. And remember, this is after migrants endure what is a perilous journey through Mexico, where according to Doctors Without Borders, around 60% are raped, molested, and or assaulted. And in many cases, we're talking about unaccompanied minors who are also being cared for by just a handful of overworked border enforcement officers or charitable uh, volunteers. And according to CBP 
emails obtained by our own Sarah Carter and her investigative report last night, one agent pleading for help, writing, quote, the overcrowding is inhumane, especially for the children. Pod 3A is, well, it's designed to hold 80 people, and on this day, we have 694 children with only two agents maintaining custody. That is 867% of the stated capacity of this detention space. So much for social distancing. Look at your screen. These are now the cages, the new plastic cages that we're talking about. Now, these are prison cells inside of tarps and tents, and some migrants then I'd able to shower for days on end, and others have been tamed in these squalid and overcrowded facilities now for weeks. According to one Border Patrol agent, quote, the detainees are now often laying on top of each other because there's no room for them to sleep. The children have to sleep on their side to save space in order for them to all lay down in this small space, by the way, on the floor. So let's be very clear tonight. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, you have both caused all of this. You're both completely responsible for this abusive environment for migrant children that they are now living in. Sean Hannity suddenly cares very deeply about migrant children. Wow, I'm really shocked. I'm really shocked by that. He really cares about human rights at the border now. He's taking what is uh, ostensibly a left-wing position now. Weird. He's never taken one of those ever before in human history, ever. He just so happens to take it now. See, here's the thing. When Trump was in power, and a similar thing was going on at the border, albeit with fewer numbers, right? But what were the arguments from the right? The arguments were, on the one hand, uh, Trump didn't build those cages, Obama and Biden built those cages. By the way, some of that's true. That's absolutely true. Those cages existed before the Trump administration, and many of them did. Um, that was one response. And then on the other hand, there was another response of like, well, what the hell do you want Trump to do? These people are coming here illegally. So yeah, they're going to get dealt with how they're going to get dealt with, and you're going to get locked up. It is what it is. Like, you're going to whine about that? You're going to bitch about that? This is the way the system works. You want to get locked up? Don't come here illegally. This is the response that the conservatives had, including people like Sean Hannity. Now, all of the sudden, there is no... I mean, you come here illegally, what do you expect? You expect us to roll out the red carpet for you? We're not going to roll out the red carpet for you. You expect us, because that's the thing. If Joe Biden had done, like, incredible accommodations where these people are staying at, like, a four- or five-star hotel or whatever, then Hannity would attack him for, look at how they're treating these people, treating them better than homeless veterans in the United States of America. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. Why would you treat immigrants and foreigners and illegal aliens better than Americans? So if he treated them really well... Hannity would attack him for it. They're being treated poorly in these terrible conditions now, and Hannity's going to attack him for it. He's going to attack him no matter what. He's just going to attack him. That's his whole point. That's his whole existence, is to work backwards from his conclusion. And his conclusion is, Democrat bad. And so here's Biden doing what is effectively the exact same policy as Trump, very similar. And Biden's attacking him for it. I mean, excuse me, not Biden. Hannity's attacking him for it. Hannity is attacking Biden for it. So I just, I can't take this guy seriously. I can't take him seriously. He's never once cared about any immigrant ever. Now all of a sudden he cares for all these immigrants who are in a terrible, uh, you know, situation at the border. Now, unlike Hannity, I'm not a partisan hack. So I'll tell you what I actually think about this. In terms of answers, like what can and should be done, 
to deal with the current situation at the border. I really don't have the answers. And it doesn't, you know, it pains me to say that. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to deal with this current, right now, influx in immigrants. I, I don't know how to deal with it. And I think anybody who tells you they know exactly what to do, I think they're lying. I don't think anybody has really good answers. Everybody's a little caught off guard here, and they don't know exactly how to craft a system that's fair and just and reasonable and, you know, a system that's accommodating but not so accommodating that you are treating immigrants better than the homeless U.S. veterans in the street or whatever, okay? So I don't have the answers. But I will say this. Everybody is having this conversation, immigration and the border, and nobody is bringing up the root causes, the root causes, of why this is happening. And there, the answers are very straightforward. And so we have long-term answers. I don't have short-term answers, because again, I don't know what to do. But I do have long-term answers. The long-term answers are, number one, and the drug war. Because that's the main reason why you have a lot of people fleeing Central and South America and Mexico, is because you have effectively narco states in many instances. You have rampant violence and crime in the streets and that's tied directly to the drug trade, directly to it. People don't make that journey unless they feel like they absolutely have to. It's not a decision people make willy-nilly, I'm going to go steal an American's job or something. No. They go, oh, my God, if we stay here, our kids are going to die. That's honestly the way it's viewed. And so they go. So you have to fix the root problem and the drug war, legalize, tax, and regulate drugs, which effectively destroys the cartels, which makes it so these places have much less crime and much less violence, and people are more inclined to stay. That's one thing. The other thing, we got to redo our trade policy. You know, our trade policy is incredibly exploitative, and it has, without a doubt, hurt many working people in a lot of these countries. The next thing is the CIA meddling. I mean, we're seeing it right now in front of our eyes, whether it's Venezuela or Bolivia or elsewhere. There's direct U.S. meddling in these countries, And the script is always the same. We pretend to care about democracy and human rights as we back right-wing tyrants and overthrow democratically elected governments. And so, yeah, it's hard to create a stable, secure government and country when there's constant outside meddling that gets in the way and really throws a wrench in democratic processes. So it's those three things, ending the drug war, fixing our trade policy, Um, getting out of Central and South America and stopping U.S. intervention and meddling. Uh, That's the answer in the long term. And if you do that, then these countries can be a lot more peaceful, stable, secure. You have much fewer people coming to the United States of America, particularly in situations like this where they just sort of show up at the border. But again, I don't have the answer in terms of the short term. But it's hilarious that Hannity who supported Trump when Trump was doing similar things at the border, now all of a sudden the exact same things Trump was doing, oh, my God, these poor migrant kids, oh, my God, what about human rights? He's the biggest hypocrite and the biggest hack on TV. It reminds me of the NSA spying program video. I don't know how many of you guys have seen that, but there was this amazing video of Sean Hannity describing the uh, warrantless wiretapping that went on under George W. Bush. And when it was under Bush, he was saying, this is all about keeping America safe. This is all about security. This is all about protections. This is about keeping terrorists in check. So the reason I support these programs is to prevent terrorism and save your life. This is what he argued. And then as soon as Obama was in power and he continued the exact same programs, Sean Hannity was out there saying, 
This is a violation of your Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure. This is big government. This, this is big government sticking their nose in your business. It's unacceptable. This has nothing to do with security. This has nothing to do with terrorism. This is the government taking away your rights. Same exact policy. Republican president versus Democratic president. Under the Republican, it's awesome. Under the Democrat, it's terrible. You're seeing the exact same thing here. And this is why nobody should take him seriously. Always beware the commentators who don't tell you what they believe. These are, like, his whole thing is, I'm just going to attack the Democrats. And every time he attacks them, there are, there are implicit points about what he believes. But then he'll do a rant another day, and he'll imply he believes something totally different in the service of attacking Democrats. You see my point? So people who play hide the ball with their beliefs, always look out for them. Because usually they're partisan hacks. And this is exactly what Sean Hannity is doing here, whether it's NSA spying, whether it's the border situation, or any other issue. Sean Hannity was one of the biggest cheerleaders I've ever seen of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But when Trump on the campaign trail would, you know, say things that were nominally anti-war, he would still agree with Trump. You spent a decade on TV saying that anybody who opposes these wars is unpatriotic and hates America. And now Trump says those things, and you're like, oh, totally, I agree with that. His politics don't come from a place of policy first, and it's really obvious. And, you know, it's one of the main reasons why his show is prominent in, you know, retirement places and literally nowhere else, because almost everybody can see through this. Okay, next. So I'm going to butcher this story in like 50 different ways, and I'm going to expose my age here, how I'm such a, at heart, at heart I'm kind of a boomer, because I'm, I'm not up to date on all the things that the cool kids are up to date on, like I should probably know some of this stuff, but I don't. I read one article on it, and I'm going to try to do it from memory here, so bear with me, but uh, there's an artist by the name of Lil Nas X, and he released a new song, and... Um, I don't know if it was in the song, but I think it was in the song or, you know, with the song, he debuted a new shoe that he wants to sell. Now, he did it with this company, which is sort of known for viral stuff, um, and they're sort of masters at finding a way to go viral. And so the idea behind the shoe is it's like a Satan shoe. And what they did is they took Nikes, something from 97. Air Max 97s, Jordans from 97, I I don't remember, but um, they're black and they're red, and they say these are Satan shoes, and they're made with a drop of human blood. And they say, buy them, they're only a limited time offer, there's only 666 of them. So, conservatives caught wind of this, and they saw this, and they absolutely flipped out. They went nuts, and they started attacking Nike, boycotting Nike. Now, Here's where it gets, I mean, the story's already weird, but here's where it gets weirder. When you talk to Nike, Nike says, we didn't do a deal with Lil Nas X to do this. We don't know what you're talking about. We're not affiliated with this at all. So it appears like what happened was Lil Nas X and this company that 
specializes in going viral. They had bought 666 pairs of Nikes. And they didn't tell Nike that, like, this is going to be used for a promotional thing that involves Satan or whatever. And so Nike was sort of blindsided because people were talking about boycott Nike. They're like, what are you talking We don't even know what you're talking about. We had nothing to do with this. And so I haven't heard any more from Lil Nas X since he dropped this, but the conservative backlash has been insane. So having said that, now let me show you what a Republican governor, I believe this is of South Dakota, Christy Noem, here's what she said about this. This is outrageous, disgusting and perverted, and on Palm Sunday, no less. Somehow Lil Nas X thinks that satanic worship should be mainstream and normal. I don't think there have been better candidates to cancel than Lil Nas X and these shoes. Well, hold on now. You guys tell me you're against cancel culture. Isn't that what you said? And you said it nonstop. Fox News does 87 segments per day about how cancel culture is wrong and bad and terrible and what we need is free speech in this country and what we need is to hear out other ideas and what we need is to not immediately feel like we're offended by everything. And Christy Noem is one of the top people on the list of the, who me? I'm anti-cancel culture, bro. I'm pro-free speech. Now look at her. Now look at her. Now Stop and think of the priorities. This is the part of this story. I just, I can't get over this. I'll never get over this. I'll never get over this. Right now, right now, we have endless illegal wars going on that we are waging. We're doing it in Iraq. We're doing it in Afghanistan. We have a drone war that was increased 432% under Donald Trump. We're bombing Syria. We have a shadow war going on in Africa that nobody ever talks about. We have 800 military bases around the world. All this in violation of international law. That's what I'm outraged about. You know what else I'm outraged about? The pandemic and the subsequent depression. The incredibly high unemployment rate. The fact that 76% of Americans were living paycheck to paycheck. And that was before COVID. I can't imagine how terrible it is now. The fact that nearly 40% of the country can't pay rent. Student loan debt. These are things that drive me crazy. These are things. The fact that we're the only developed country that doesn't have universal health care, tens of millions of people don't have health insurance in this country. In the middle of a pandemic, medical bills are one of the top causes of bankruptcy. Prescription drug prices are through the roof. These are the real problems in this country. This is what I care about. This is what I'm concerned about. This is what I think about. I think about the economy. I think about health care. I think about jobs. I think about poverty. I think about homelessness. That's what I care about. Look at where their focus is. They're more outraged about sneakers than about endless war or poverty or lack of health care or any of the major problems you can point to. And we have so many. Our infrastructure gets a grade of C. It actually slightly improved from D+. But still, C? We're supposed to be the number one country in the world? What a joke. What a joke. And this is what they care about. And they said they were against cancel culture. What they really meant was, I'm only going to scream about cancel culture if I sort of agree with the person getting canceled, you know? So if somebody says some racist shit, and they're like, no, this is cancel culture coming for this person. It's not fair. Not just. Cancel culture needs to stop. I believe in free speech. What they're really saying is, I sort of agree with the shit that they said that you're canceling them for. That's what they mean when they talk about it. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's not principled on this. There's a number of principled free speech supporters. I fancy myself a principled free speech supporter. I will actually support somebody on free speech grounds, even if I don't agree with the substance of what they're saying. But now you know. 
that when it comes to a lot of these shameless Republican politicians and conservatives and media figures, this is what's really going on. When they say that they're against cancel culture, they just mean, I sort of agree when, when the people on the right get canceled, I just agree with the shit that they're saying. That's why I'm against them being canceled. But they're the first to go press that button and go nuclear when it's something they don't like. And by the way, Satan's not real. Who gives a fuck? Who gives a fuck? They're fucking around. Satan's not real. The devil's not real. Somebody made a good point on Twitter. They were like, one of the reasons why conservatives are losing it over this is because they think Satan might be real, like little babies. And so they think Satan worship, oh my God, this is terrible. This is wrong. This is evil. What if Satan actually comes back and does terrible things because of this? Are we summoning him? Is that what we're doing? Some of them really are thinking like that, man. And one of the Chapo guys made a great point. He's like, we live in a demonic country that's hyper obsessed with individualism. And like, we casually let over 500,000 Americans die from a pandemic that was definitely preventable. We could have saved so many more lives. And then these same people who are cheering on the most backwards approach imaginable that involves death and destruction to a pandemic, all of a sudden these people are like, oh, I hope we don't become satanic because Satanism is evil. Have you seen what's going on in the country? That's not. So they'll turn away from the real world evil or actively support the real world evil, but just fear the metaphysical nonsense evil. What a joke, man. What a joke. What a joke. And never again do I want to hear these people talk about cancel culture or free speech. They're all hypocrites. It's the same, all the morons on the right who scream about free speech all day long. The second we have real threats to freedom of speech, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, nowhere to be found. The second that all these states and cities and localities pass these ordinances about how you're not allowed to criticize Israel or you'll lose all government funds, do they say, whoa, this is a violation of free speech in the First Amendment? Nope, they say nothing, because they support Israel. So if you censor people on behalf of Israel, that's fine. But just don't censor people, you know, for left-wing ideals or goals. Pathetic, man, pathetic. But I think it actually worked exactly like Lil Nas wanted it to. You know what I mean? Like, he partnered with this company that, specialized in going viral, and then he went viral. Now, granted, it was because it was the hate of the conservatives, but I think they sort of calculated that, and they were like, this is what's going to happen. The conservatives are going to come after you, and then you'll get a backlash, and people will defend you, and that's where we'll end up. That appears to be exactly right. That appears to be exactly what happened, but it's still amazing that they were baited into showing how pro-cancel culture they are and anti-free speech they are. It's just a sneaker. If you get outraged over a sneaker... Your brain is broken and your moral compass is broken. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the filibuster and we're going to talk about the origins of COVID-19. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
right, welcome back, y'all. Welcome back, Cotter. All right, let me get in the proper positioning here. Move right along. Let's talk about the filibuster. <clears throat> So Joe Biden has gone back and forth on the filibuster a number of times. At first, he totally ruled out getting rid of it. Um, It seemed like he was also against reforming it. And then he came out later, sort of waffled on it. Eventually, he came out in favor of reforming it. Um, Then there were reports just the other day that he's in favor of abolishing it now, not just reforming it. So this is a, a long way of me telling you, I have no idea what Joe Biden believes about the filibuster and what he's going to do about the filibuster. If they don't reform it or get rid of it, his presidency is over. They're gonna, nothing else is going to get done. The only stuff that's going to get done is whatever he does through executive order, and he's already said he's going to be limited on that front, and whatever he does in terms of foreign policy. And so far, his worst area has been foreign policy. So um, let's see what he says when asked directly about his position on the filibuster after all of his waffling and flip-flopping. Take a look. Regarding the filibuster, at John Lewis's funeral, President Barack Obama said he believed the filibuster was a relic of the Jim Crow era. Do you agree? Yes. If not, why not abolish it if it's a relic of the Jim Crow era? Successful electoral politics is the art of the possible. Let's figure out how we can get this done and move in the direction of significantly changing the abuse of even the filibuster rule first. It's been abused from the time it came into being by an extreme way in the last 20 years. Let's deal with the abuse first. It sounds like you're moving closer to eliminating the filibuster. Is that correct? I answered your question. No, you didn't. You didn't really do that at all. So um, she does sort of checkmate him there. She says, well, you said the filibuster is a relic of the Jim Crow era, or do you think the filibuster is a relic of the Jim Crow era? And Biden was like, yeah. And she's like, then why not get rid of it? What are you, pro-Jim Crow era stuff? And he's like, see, what happened was me and Craig and them was down by the Safeway and the sun was in my eyes and we thought that they was coming with Steve and Greg and I don't even, I'm gone. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, that that was awkward. But I love when he actually gets around to finally saying something, he says, Successful electoral politics is the art of the possible. Fortune cookie ass phrase. Let's figure out how we can get this done. And then he says, get rid of the abuse of the filibuster rule. Yes, but how, Joe? That's the question. The question is how. How do you do that? What are you in favor of? What are you going to do? Listen, I think the takeaway is the obvious one, which is he doesn't know what he's going to do. Joe Biden, it strikes me that Joe Biden is still holding out some sort of hope that he and Mitch McConnell and nine Republican senators, which is what he would need to get a bill passed to regular order, that they're going to have a kumbaya moment, they're going to have a come-together moment, they're going to, you know, 
we can agree on doing infrastructure stuff and we can agree on raising taxes on the wealthy a little bit. They're not going to do that, Joe. So I think he does have hope that there could be some sort of bipartisan deal making and that he doesn't have to do the filibuster thing. But, you know, time and time again, he's been reminded he was there through eight years of Obama. He should know. He does know that they ain't going to do dick with you. So then what are you doing? It's either he's holding out hope because he's incredibly naive, or he doesn't even want anything to get passed. He doesn't want anything to get passed. Or he does want stuff to get passed. He's going to realize there's zero hope of it. And in that situation, he would have to, at the very least, reform the filibuster back to the talking filibuster so that more of his priorities can get through. So uh, that's where we're at right now. But I'm kind of amazed that he's been all over the place. This isn't a very difficult question. Like, he's been in politics since roughly 1612. You don't have a fully formed position on the filibuster. You never thought this through. You know, in my mind, the hierarchy is I like the talking filibuster because it gives when Democrats are in the minority and Republicans are trying to jam stuff through, it gives you the opportunity as a last-ditch effort to actually do the work and talk and block something. Um, So that's what I prefer. But, yes, right underneath that, if you tell me current status quo or totally abolish the filibuster, I take abolish the filibuster every time. So I would say talking filibuster, abolish the filibuster, status quo, which is untenable and insane. Um, But it seems like he really hasn't thought through this much or holding out hope for bipartisanship or whatever. So I don't know what's going on. And it's insane to me that the reporting has been massively contradictory. And Biden himself has been massively contradictory. We've heard everything. We've heard he's totally against it, not even going to consider it. Okay, he's going to reform it. Okay, now he wants to get rid of it. Okay, no, he has actually no clue what he believes, and we're just sort of buying time until the next bill gets passed. I guess what they're going to do is run through the reconciliation bills, and then after they do the reconciliation bills, then they'll address it or not. But they'll cross that bridge when they come to it. But it just shows you, like, there are no adults in the room. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just winging it and hoping it gets by and hoping it works out. But it ain't going to work out unless you take major action on the filibuster. Okay. I hesitated before bringing this story to you, but if you can't report on this when it's clear experts making this proclamation, then you can never report on it. So, I mean, this video will probably be demonetized and, you know, could be viewed as promotion of an extremist position or whatever, but I got to tell you the truth. So anyway, this is surprising. This is a bombshell from the former CDC head. He goes on CNN the most establishment of every outlet, to say something shocking about the origins of COVID-19. If I was to guess, this virus started transmitting somewhere in September, October, in Wuhan. September, October. That's my own view. It's an only opinion. I'm allowed to have opinions now. You know, I am of the point of view that I still think the most likely uh, etiology of this pathogen in Wuhan was from a laboratory 
um, you know, escaped. Uh, the other people don't believe that. That's fine. Science will eventually figure it out. It's not unusual for respiratory pathogens that are being worked on in a laboratory to infect a laboratory worker. It is also not unusual for that type of research to be occurring in Wuhan. The city is a widely known center for viral studies in China, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which has experimented extensively with bat coronaviruses. It is a remarkable conversation I, I feel like we're having here because you are the former CDC director and you were the director at the time this was all happening. For the first time, the former CDC director is stating publicly that he believes this pandemic started months earlier than we knew and that it originated not at a wet market, but inside a lab in China. These are two significant things to say, Dr. Redfield. That's not implying any intentionality. You know, it's my opinion, right? But I am a virologist. I have spent my life in virology. I do not believe this somehow came from a bat to a human and at that moment in time, the virus that came to the human became one of the most infectious viruses that we know in humanity for human-to-human -human transmission. Normally when a pathogen goes from a zoonote to a human, it takes a while for it to figure out how to become more and more efficient in human-to-human -human transmission. I just don't think this makes biological sense. So in the lab, do you think that that process of becoming more efficient was happening? Is that what you were suggesting? Yeah, let's just say I have coronavirus that I'm working on. Most of us in the lab, we're trying to grow a virus. We try to help make it grow better and better and better and better and better and better so we can do experiments and figure out about it. I, that's, that's the way I put it together. It's a pretty, uh, pretty extraordinary conversation uh, and a little glimpse of, of what we revealed sort of within these couple of hours. I should, I should point out the World Health Organization called the lab leak theory unlikely, and Chinese officials have started uh, increasingly pointing to a multiple origin theory, saying that this, this pandemic may have started in multiple places, even around the world, including U.S. military <laughs> labs. That's unsubstantiated, but that's, that's sort of the back and forth that's happening right now. We still don't know a year later, exactly how this, this pandemic started. Sanjay, he's the former CDC director, so when he says it's just his opinion, it's not just, right. just an opinion. The former CDC director sees things and knows things that the rest a of us don't long of expertise. Well, but not only is lifelong of expertise, but actually when he was in the U.S. government seeing things that the rest of us aren't entitled to. I mean, how much of just an opinion can it be? Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, he's talking to people on the ground, not just his counterparts at the China CDC, but we have investigators on the ground in various countries around the world, including China. If you look even at our preparedness and response sort of uh, strategies in the United States, it's, it's medical and public health, but it's also intelligence gathering. So when we're sitting down and talking to all these people, we're getting a sort of overall picture, I think, for the first time of what they knew, what they knew uh, at what time, and how they were sort of piecing that together. So it's, it's, it's really, it's, and it's not just intrigue. I mean, it's important to know how this started if you're going to best prepare for, for a, a possible future pandemic. To go and so, it's sort of from an animal to a human and suddenly become one of the most infectious pathogens we've ever seen in humanity simply doesn't happen very often. That's the point that Dr. Redfield was trying to make. You know, I'm not an expert in this by any stretch of the imagination. So whatever commentary I give on this, you have to put an asterisk by it and say, this is a regular Joe Schmo moron. 
I'm, I'm, op- I'm admittedly a moron. So I just want to get make that clear. Having said that, this segment convinced me. This segment convinced me. N- to the point where I'm like 80% on the side of, nah, this came from the lab. For a number of reasons. So first of all, he says his opinion is, is that it started in September or October, which is earlier than what we previously heard. And then he says in Wuhan, there's a virology lab in Wuhan. And then they go on to say, this is where I pounded the gavel. They go on to say, that coronavirus is at that lab. Well, why are we being silly? Why are we being ridiculous? Like, obviously that's the most likely scenario that it came from there. Duh. Hey, there's a bat coronavirus that's now taking over the world. Where did this come from? I don't know. Have you checked bat coronavirus central? (laughs) That's that's really the conversation that we're having. Uh, And then I really pounded the gavel when they say um, that, and I've I've heard this before, but COVID-19 is like three or four times more contagious than the flu. So the flu is very contagious. It's viewed as very contagious. But this is like three or four times more contagious than the flu. I, I mean, are we really having the conversation still? Are we really having the conversation? Now, I do want to caution a little bit here, though, because I, I don't think they did it on purpose. Like, I don't think that the Chinese government was like, Mwahaha, let's release a virus and a pathogen that takes over the world. Mwahaha. And the reason I say that is because there were plenty of people in China who got this virus, too, and died in China and got all around the world. There, there's no, there's no incentive, there's no motive for them to do that. Um, I think it was, it was just an accident. But having said that, what are we, what exactly are we doing with this study? Like, what's the point of studying the bat coronaviruses? Now, if you tell me the reason we're doing it is to try to come up with cures for other coronaviruses, okay, I got it. Uh, that makes sense, I guess. Are there other ways to maybe study it where you can try to come up with cures that don't involve maybe risking a potential global pandemic that kills probably over a million people? Probably, right? Like, again, I'm not an expert, so take whatever I say with a grain of salt, but like, what is the point of doing the studies on this stuff? What's the point? And it strikes me as like, this, this popped in my mind as I was watching that clip. Human beings are intelligent idiots. That's what we are. Like, we're smart enough to come up with the technology to create vaccines, you know, to mass produce antibiotics. Um, we're smart enough to get to the moon and to fly across the world. We have planes. It's so commonplace. Nobody even thinks twice about the fact that you get into a metal tube and can fly across the world, you know. So we're smart enough to do shit like that, but we're also dumb enough to, like, create nuclear weapons, which, you know, we, the U.S. dropped it on, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, like, just obliterated civilian populations, just brutal murder, right? But, like, at this point, with the technology we have now, if there ever is another nuclear war, that's it. It's over. Game, set, match on humanity, son. So, like, why would you even create that kind of technology? There's no intelligent functional purpose for it. You can make some stretch of an argument about game theory and so it keeps stability because everybody's armed to the teeth. Maybe, maybe. Uh, it's also possible that 
it could destroy the world and maybe it will eventually destroy the world. And we created the tools of our own demise. That's also possible. So I think we're intelligent idiots. And this is an instance of like, we have this lab where it's like high level study of viruses and bat coronaviruses or whatever. And then it's like, whoopsies, infected the whole planet. Tee -hee -hee. I'm not sure that it's the best idea to play with fire like this, you know? But I say that, but then again, maybe it's in human nature. Maybe it's just part of who we are. Maybe this is just, you know, it's something that's inextricable from our being, is that we always push the limits. You know, we're cowboys on the frontier, and we're just, we're always pushing limits. We're always trying new things. We're always expanding. I mean, maybe that is the case, but, you know, all I can say is I, I look at what happened here. I'm now convinced it came from the lab. I do think it was an accident. I don't think it was on purpose. But it makes me go, why were they even doing that in the first place? Why were they even doing that in the first place? I don't – and maybe somebody can explain it to me in a way that I go, okay, I see. You had to do it. But it doesn't look like you had to play with fire. It doesn't look like you had to play with these bat coronaviruses and lead to a global pandemic. And the final point is I think it's hilarious that China was like, oh, yeah, maybe it came from a U.S. military lab. Come on, son. No, literally nobody on planet Earth is harsher on the military-industrial complex than me. I, I don't need to flex my credentials on that shit. I talk about it like every day on this show, okay? But that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's like, I know what you are, what am I? That's what they just did. It came from Wuhan in a virology lab. And they're like, yeah, maybe it came from a military base in Missouri. Maybe that has – come on, man. Just own the shit. Just own it. Like, there's plenty of legitimate criticisms of the U.S. government and the U.S. military. You don't need to say some dumb shit. Like, maybe it's you. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, um, there you have it, man. And, again, this is on CNN, the most establishment of all outlets. And they're admitting this. Although, you know, this is totally conspiratorial, and I don't believe this, but I'm going to float it anyway. Um, some might argue that the reason why they're allowing this on CNN is that this is actually the narrative that the U.S. government wants you to know. They want you to actually blame um, the Chinese government, because that, you know, we're sort of ramping up in this new Cold War where they're our main adversary, and so they want to use this to maybe beef up our own military budgets. So that, that's conspiratorial, and I don't really buy that, but um, it is true that there is increasingly anti-China sentiment in the media. Uh, some of it legitimate, some of it not, um, but I'm giving that perspective as well. Some people would probably make that argument, but there you go. I mean... Former CDC head saying, I think it came from a virology lab in Wuhan. That's a huge deal. This next clip is a perfect example and illustration as to why politics is soul-sucking and terrible and evil, definitely evil. So I think this is CNBC. They're going to talk about 
um, the internal discussions going on in our government around the COVID vaccines and the COVID treatment. Watch this, and then we'll break it down. vaccines. They've been proven to work to differing degrees, depending on which one, you know, you talk about. And um, should we allow developing countries to use our formulas to create that vaccine? That's the debate we're having. So in other words, the Biden administration is carefully weighing the pro-genocide and anti-genocide positions. We have the knowledge and the ability to vaccinate people for COVID-19. And they're saying, should we allow the developing world to vaccinate people for COVID-19? Or if they create vaccines, if they use our formulas, the Moderna formula, the Pfizer formula, whatever, if they create vaccines with that formula, do we allow the pharmaceutical companies to sue and win over, you know, violation of intellectual property rights? And, oh, they're, they're, you know, they're not, they're not abiding by our patent. We have the patent protection on this formula. They're stealing our formula. They're criminals. This has to stop. That's the debate we're having. Now, they say it was South Africa and India who basically were like, you guys, what are you, you've got to give us the vaccine. Like, you've got to give us the formula, the vaccine. We, we can mass produce the vaccine. You've got to give us the formula for it. And Biden's like, hmm, should I do that or should I not do that? Should I doom millions of people to not getting vaccinated and potentially many dying as a result of that or not. And the only reason, here's the main point, guys, the only reason why this is even a conversation is because Big Pharma bought and owns the U.S. government. Big Pharma has donated to politicians in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. They donate to corporatists on both sides of the aisle. And so that's why there's a dilemma where some people are struggling with what the right thing to do is in this situation. is because Big Pharma wants to make sure they make profits on this. And if you just give away the formula for the vaccine, they're not going to make as much profits on it. So that's why they're like, I don't know, should I protect my donors, Big Pharma, or should I save millions of people potentially in the developing world? Yeah, that's a tough one. I'm telling you, this shows you how broken 
politics is and how gross it is and how broken the media is because you saw the way they phrased it. Like, it's a both sides. Well, there's a lot of vibrant debate around this, and you have people on both sides. On this side, the pharmaceutical industry says we love genocide, and on the other side, there's a handful of lawmakers who say genocide is bad. Back to you, Chet. This is insane. This reminds me of when Jonas Salk created the polio vaccine, and then he was asked basically why he didn't patent it, and he's like, would you patent the sun? Can't patent the sun. I created a cure for a terrible disease that's ripping through the population. What am I going to do? Keep it to myself? Price gouge people? Doom people to die from this disease and suffer with this disease? What are you, insane? I said it once. I'll say it again. I'll keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying it. Nationalize big pharma. One of my most radical, quote unquote, positions. I don't think it's radical. I actually think it's super reasonable. Uh, I think you should nationalize everything involving health care. You should nationalize health care, health insurance, and big pharma. Nationalize all of them. Because I'm sorry, to me, I've seen the evidence. The proof is there. The data is there. The, the profit motive in these particular fields is the worst incentive you could ever imagine, and it has devastating consequences. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think, you know, there's, there's – areas where the profit motive is okay. On the contrary, I do think there are plenty of consumer goods. There's plenty of areas where I say, hey, it's fine if you make a profit doing X, Y, or Z. When it comes to anything involving healthcare, it is deeply immoral and unethical, and the system should not allow it. It should be reformed. These systems should be nationalized. All the pharma companies. I mean, guys, the way it works now in many cases is that you have universities doing the study on various medicines. They create the cures. So tax money funds the cures, the creation of the medicines and the cures, and then Big Pharma swoops in, buys up the intellectual property rights, patents it, and then sells it back to you and price gouges you and makes double profit, and you get charged twice. You were charged up front when your tax money went to create it, and then they charge you afterwards, price gouge you to get the medicine. Why would we allow that system? We shouldn't allow that system. Big Pharma is a mafia. They provide no actual service. And they lie and act like, well, we do the research. You don't do dick. They don't do the research and development. They certainly are not necessary in research and development. You could have all the research and development funded by tax dollars, and you could have it all done at universities by the top scientists. You don't need Pfizer or Merck or some, you know, whatever, GlaxoSmithKline or uh, AstraZeneca. You don't need them to, to do any research or development. You, a lot of it is done already with tax money. So why are you allowing a mafia to come in there and price gouge people and be a parasite? Don't allow it. Don't allow it. So if Biden makes the decision to not lift the patent protections and the intellectual property rights, then he's dooming hundreds of thousands or millions of people to die. And he's putting a big middle finger up to the developing world. And and by the way, this is so dumb. Geopolitically, too, because China is saying, we'll give everybody our vaccine. This isn't, of course we're going to give you our vaccine. Well, we're going to let you die. That's what we're going to do. We're going to let you die. So China's like, we'll give you the vaccine. We'll be proactive on that front. And the U.S. is like, hmm, not only are we not going to give you the vaccine, we're not sure if we're even going to allow you to use our formulas. Maybe if you use our formulas, Big Pharma will sue you. Grotesque, man. What a broken system. What a broken system. Nationalize all of it. Nationalize the pharma industry, and immediately allow these companies to create the vaccine with the formulas. Get rid of the patent protection, get rid of the intellectual property rights, 
It's a pandemic. And by the way, again, it should be everything involving health. Any medicine that you're like withholding from somebody for money, like, okay, well, thank you for being the epitome of evil (laughs) and wrong. So there you have it. It's crazy that this is even a debate. Okay. Next. I love this next story. President Trump is proudly back on his bullshit. Take a look. Now to a possible preview of Republican primary season 2022 and the lengths the candidates may go to to curry favor with former President Donald Trump. It comes from this report in Politico that is titled, Trump's secret sit-down with Ohio candidates turns into Hunger Games. And this details what reportedly happened when the former president summoned four candidates to a meeting all of them vying to be Ohio's next U.S. Senator, hoping to fill Rob Portman's seat when he leaves in 2022. Uh, Let's talk about this with uh, Alex Eisenstadt, who is behind this story. You're the national political reporter for, uh, political reporter for Politico. Okay, Alex, what a headline. Hunger Games, huh? Uh, Tell us what went on behind the scenes here. So basically, Trump was at his golf club in Florida, and there was a fundraiser for an Ohio candidate running a different race, and you had four Ohio Senate candidates who decided to make their trek all the way down to Florida uh, to essentially kiss Trump's ring. And the, pre- the former president invites the four of them into a back room. He puts them in a circular table so they're forced to face one another, and essentially it's an audition these four candidates engaged in in order to sort of impress uh, the former president. And speaking with someone who's directly familiar with what happened, it felt a lot like Trump's old reality show, The Apprentice, where you had all these different candidates just trying to curry favor and impress the former president in hopes of landing his all-important endorsement. So uh, any idea who did well here? Well, it's unclear who did well, but you definitely had certain candidates, namely a guy by the name of Josh Mandel, who's one of the candidates running, who was really aggressive in terms of attacking another candidate who was sitting right there uh, beside him. Uh, And he said, speaking of this candidate, uh, Mandel said he was going to crush her. He said he was defeating her really soundly. And the speculation I got in talking and reporting out this story was that Mandel was really playing for an audience of one, that Trump would kind of like that candidates today, and we have yet to hear back. But, you know, on the bigger issue, Alex, of where Trump is going to factor in the primary season, how significant will he be as a kingmaker? Well, I think what this story shows is that Trump is going to be the ultimate kingmaker in this party. He is going to, candidates are treating him as the guy who can make or break outcome in these Republican primary races, and it's really this remarkable thing. You know, you talk to candidates, Republican candidates who are uh, running races across the country, and it's as if the only thing that matters to them, the thing that's the most important to them, is somehow nabbing Trump's endorsement. And so with this scene 
really shows is the length to which they are willing to go out there uh, and get it. It's, it's, it's something that we haven't really seen before with previous presidents. You didn't see candidates uh, really trying to curry favor in this way with Barack Obama or George W. Bush, for example. This is a different kind of thing. There's another report that Trump wandered into a wedding that was happening at Mar-a-Lago and he picked up a microphone and he started rambling and ranting against Joe Biden and saying, like, do you guys miss me yet? Do you guys miss me yet? I think you probably miss me. I miss me if I'm being totally honest with you. So classic Trump. That's actually, by the way, really hilarious. I could see I could see him doing that perfectly. Like he's hanging out in his own room in Mar-a-Lago and he just like wanders out and goes to the wedding and he's like, Hey, how you doing? Former President of the United States, Donald Trump. Current President, actually, if we're being honest about it. I mean, if we're really being honest about it, I, I think there's a lot of irregularities in the voting system. Um, so, that, I mean, that story made me laugh. Now, in terms of this story, yes, they're accurately calling him the kingmaker. And you're having these Senate hopefuls making the trek to Florida to try to, to kiss his ring, to try to get his endorsement. That's what this is. And... Um, there's two major takeaways here. One of them is he's being the reality show host again. That's what this is. This is him going back to his roots as the reality show host, which, by the way, The Apprentice was one of the few things he did that was just flat out profitable. You know, when you look at his business history, man, there were so many flops. Trump the board game, Trump vodka, I mean, you fill in the blank. Trump steaks, which he randomly sold at the Sharper Image in a food store. <laughs> what are you doing? So anyway, he's a disastrous businessman. His businesses have gone bankrupt about six times, I believe. He somehow bankrupted a casino, which is a business where they literally just come and give you money. Um, so not the best businessman, but he was the apprentice was the thing that was the real hit. And because he plays the role of like the entertainer, big boss man really well. I mean, that's how America came to know him, right? Um, so... He's being the reality show host again and, in a sense, getting back to his roots. The second thing is this, and this takeaway is probably the most substantive and the most important. Guys, Trump being the kingmaker is actually hilarious because he's totally vapid and non-ideological at this point. That's what it is. So it's not like he's calling these Senate hopefuls to come to Mar-a-Lago and um, they're going through the Trump agenda hey, what's your view of Trumpism? Lay it out for me. Where, where do you stand on all of the major policy points vis-a-vis Trumpism? It's not like he's taking them in a room on their own and they go through, tell me, so what do you think about trade? What do you think about foreign policy? He's not doing that. It's not ideological. So in other words, he can have four people, four candidates sit around at a table. And the one who nominally disagrees with him the most ideologically, as long as that person kisses his ring and kisses his ass the most, he's probably going to pick that person to endorse. Because we've seen this a number of times. Trump has endorsed some of the deepest establishment Republicans in the country, which shows you what? That it's not, it's not ideological. It never was ideological. Everything he said in 2016 when he ran, the vaguely populist stuff, the vaguely non-interventionist stuff, it was just an angle. He never believed it. If he believed it, he would have done it when he was in office. There was still outsourcing under his administration. We're still in the wars. Even the idea, oh, we have a deadline of May 1st, we're going to get out of Afghanistan. Nonsense. It still keeps thousands of troops there. It's not a withdrawal. It's just a reduction. And even that's going to be reversed by Biden anyway. So 
That's what you need to understand. This isn't ideological. This is like, hey, man, just come tell me I'm the best and kiss my ring and kiss my ass, and then if you do it sufficiently and I like you, well, then I'll endorse you, which is just, I mean, honestly, it's, it's hilarious, and it's actually the perfect end to the Trump era. Now, we don't even know if it's the end of the Trump era because he might run in 2024, and God forbid he's up against Kamala or somebody, he could win. He could win. So we don't know if it's the end of the Trump era, but this would be a fitting end to the Trump era, which is like he becomes the kingmaker of a broken political party, and he's a kingmaker in the sense that he's totally non-ideological, and it's all about, like, if you stroke my ego sufficiently, I'll support you. So you'll just have a bunch of Trump cult sycophants in the Republican Party. But that's the thing, man. I don't think that bodes well for the Republican Party. He's the only one that can get away with being Trumpy. You know, he's the only one that somehow can, all the scandals, he could just swap them aside and plow through. Other people, they could try to be Trumpy. Even Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz try to be Trumpy. It doesn't work. So if he just picks the sufficiently Trumpy ones who kiss his ass and love him the most and act the most like him, that could spell disaster for the Republican Party, because I got news for you. They already lost the suburbs, and the Republicans need the suburbs to really have a prayer in national elections. They need them. So it could be terrible for the Republican Party. It really could be. And I think that they're probably more intelligent establishment Republican figures who know that, and they don't know exactly how to handle this. Mitch McConnell clearly didn't know how to handle it when it came down to January 6th, the attempted insurrection, the impeachment. He didn't know what he was doing. They don't know what they're doing. So... It'll be really interesting to watch this stuff continue to unfold, but Donald Trump is back to his reality show ways. All right, now we're going to talk about Congress berating big tech. Congress has... um, perfected the art of the virtue signal. And they love to go out there and say, I'm a good person and I believe in good things. And I, there are bad people who believe in bad things, but that's not me. I believe in good things. Here, watch me grandstand in a committee hearing that has no teeth attached to it. So anyway, um, here they are. Here's a congressman. I actually don't know who this congressman is. They didn't put his name up on the screen. And I, I got to be honest with you, I didn't care enough to try to figure it out. But anyway, uh, here's a congressman. And um, he's going to berate social media CEOs here, but take note of the posture he's taking because he's not berating them because they're too large and they need to be broken up. He's not berating them because of egregious profits. He's berating them because in his estimation, they don't censor enough. Watch. Thank you. Okay, so if you think the vaccines work, 
Why do your companies allow accounts that repeatedly offend your vaccine disinformation policies to remain up? I mean, according to report, just 12 accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram account for 65% of all the vaccine disinformation on your platforms. You're exposing tens of millions of users to this every day. I, I don't have the stats on YouTube, but my understanding is it's similar. So my, my question is, why in the midst of a global pandemic that has killed over half a million Americans that you haven't taken these accounts down that are responsible for the preponderance of vaccine disinformation on your platforms? Uh, will you all commit to taking these platforms down today, Mr. Zuckerberg? Congressman, yes, we do have a policy against uh, allowing... Well, I don't have a policy, but will you take the sites down today? You still have 12 people up on your site doing this. Will you take them down? Congressman, I would need to look at the and, and have our team look at the exact examples to make sure well, they violate the we have a policy in tomorrow place. because those still exist. We we found them as early as last night. Uh, Mr. Pichai, how about you? Uh, we have removed over 850,000 videos. Uh, if we remove them all, you still have people that are spreading disinformation on your platforms. There's about 12 super spreaders. We have uh, clear policies and we take down content. Some of the content is allowed if it's people's personal experiences, but, you know, we, we definitely... Okay, thank you. Mr. Dorsey. Dorsey, I see my time is getting expired. Mr. Dorsey, will you check these sites down? you got yeah. about 12 yeah. super spreaders. Will you take them down? Yes, we have everything against our policy. That was tough to watch. So, listen, before we get into the specifics of the clip, let me say this. There's a different part where they discuss stop the steal, and they say this proliferated on Facebook. It helped lead to the attempted insurrection on January 6th and all that. And then, obviously, you saw them talk about uh, anti-vaccine misinformation. What's my opinion on vaccines? I'm pro-vaccine. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I think they work. What's my opinion on stop the steal? Total bullshit. They're totally wrong. Joe Biden won the election fair and square. There's that, okay? I just want to be clear with my opinions up front. Having said that, he's prodding and begging big tech CEOs to just ban stuff that he doesn't agree with. Get rid of the stop the steal stuff. Get rid of the anti-vaccine stuff. Listen, people are allowed to be wrong. People are allowed to be disastrously wrong and still post what they want. And the fact that this is not the widespread, like, across-the-board belief now is maddening to me. Because the only way to carry out what this congressman wants is to have a ministry of truth who determines what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in the discourse. And anytime you have a ministry of truth, you're saying, let's have censors. Let's have Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires determine what is and isn't acceptable, and have them control the discourse in a very hands-on, direct way. Why would you trust the Ministry of Truth? Why would you trust the censors? I got news for you. There is no such thing as perfectly objective in every way. That doesn't exist. It's a myth. So since that's the case, what you're saying is, I would like to lean on the side of authoritarianism and just hope that the Ministry of Truth gets everything right. There's something to be said about having dialogue and discourse, even if People are dead wrong about something. You're not going to get rid of Stop the Steal by just banning stuff from Facebook or get rid of anti-vax stuff just by banning stuff from Facebook. That's not how it works. You know, that stuff is always going to exist. It's always going to be there. Wouldn't you rather have it out there and then have, you know, 
real intelligent responses that break it down. Hey, here's why you're wrong about Stop the Steal. Hey, here's why you're wrong about the anti-vaccine stuff. And that's not going to get rid of all the people who believe those things, but you will convert some people. But what you want to do is you want to ban them and give them a victim complex, further solidifying them in their incorrect beliefs. Okay, the way I view this is like this. Imagine you had some sort of private gathering place that's like a public square. And in this private gathering place that's like a public square, you allow in a couple hundred people for some sort of barbecue. At the barbecue, a lot of people are talking about pleasant things off in a corner or whatever, sipping some lemonade, eating a hot dog or whatever. And then there's other people who are discussing in this private gathering, which is like a, you know, public square, they're discussing stop the steal or they're discussing vaccine beliefs. Somebody's against it, somebody's for it, they're having the conversation. What this guy wants is for the person whose private gathering that is to go up to the person who doesn't believe in vaccines or believes in stop the steal and say, you're banned, get out, get out of here. This person talking about stop the steal, you got to go. This person is talking about anti-vaccine stuff, you got to go. Okay, let, let's keep going. This person uh, doesn't buy the official story on JFK, they got to go. This person's questioning 9-11 stuff, they got to go. This person brought up the Bay of Pigs. This person brought up the Tuskegee experiments. That, the establishment says that you're not allowed to talk about those things. They got to go. This one's talking about the 2016 uh, DNC primary and how it was rigged against Bernie Sanders. The establishment doesn't accept that one. That's got to go. This person's taking the side of Edward Snowden. This person's taking the side of Chelsea Manning. Okay, well, the establishment has deemed that they're criminals and they're bad actors and they're you're working for foreign governments or whatever bullshit they're using against them now. They got to go. This person's questioning what happened in Syria. They got to go. There is, once you start censoring, there is no little bit of censoring. It's always going to be used to support the narrative of the powerful. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. And I haven't even brought up the most important point, which is, in many cases, mainstream media and our own government are the key spreaders of misinformation and disinformation. It was the media that got virtually everything wrong about Russiagate. Stories that were just flat out fabricated, that were lies about Paul Manafort meeting with Julian Assange, totally not true, and they ran with it. The story about Russian bounties on our soldiers, it took like within a few weeks, there was an admission, actually this is kind of bullshit, but some are still running with it. These are, and, and that's a very serious thing to be wrong about and to push out there. By this logic, wouldn't you have to get rid of some of the major outlets? I haven't even brought the Iraq war. Virtually every single mainstream media outlet pushed for an illegal and offensive wars based, based on lies, based on lies. They did the bidding of the intelligence agencies when the intelligence agencies were lying. They were wrong. And people pushed it as if it was gospel. Shouldn't they all be banned then by your logic? Shouldn't they be banned? Hey, you're spreading misinformation that is leading to active real-world harm leading to the deaths of at least 200,000 innocent civilians in Iraq. Right? So shouldn't, by their logic, hey, you believe in censorship and you believe in deplatforming, shouldn't these people go? No, because again, he just believes in censoring people who are not in power. And they might say, oh, started with the right-wingers now and the stop the steal and the anti-vax stuff. It ain't going to stop there, dog. It never stops there, ever. Ever. Buck the establishment narrative on Russia. Buck the establishment narrative on China. You know, support some sort of edgy lefties. Chapo Trap House was banned from Reddit. 
the list goes on and on. How many lefties have been banned from Twitter because they've been accused of being some sort of Russian bots or whatever? We shouldn't even be having this conversation. This is the government prodding social media CEOs to censor more Americans. Listen, I know people are wrong about stuff often. That's called life. Engage, have dialogue. You'll convince some, you won't convince others. But this is the price of freedom. I don't want an authoritarian dialogue dictated by idiot Congress people in a ministry of truth. Because they're going to be way too expansive. And even if they weren't way too expansive, as a matter of principle, I believe in free discourse. Now, of course, if somebody's doing direct threats of violence, that's totally different. That's even illegal under our Constitution and our First Amendment. No direct threats of violence. Got it. That's not what he's talking about. Ban anybody discussing stop the steal or ban anybody discussing anti-vax stuff. Or it's, not, it's never going to stop there. And guess what? The way this would functionally work, this is the part that should terrify you the most. If we had these platforms and we had this approach back during the Iraq war, you know who really would have been banned? The people questioning the Iraq war. The people who said, hey, man, I don't think Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. Those would have been the ones who were banned for misinformation and disinformation. Listen, yes, sometimes the conspiracies are wrong. Sandy Hook, for example, you know, you name it, stop the steal, you name it. Sometimes the conspiracies are wrong. Sometimes the so-called conspiracies are actually the factually correct position. And if you give the powerful these tools, they will always use it to fit their own ends. So if you're on the left and you're advocating for censorship, beware of what you wish for. This is going to come back and bite you in the ass immediately. It's like, it's like with Twitter. They're, they were prodding Twitter to do more bannings. Guess what? A number of large Antifa accounts got banned. Because of course they are. They're going to be. Of course they are. And a lot of the Antifa people are the people who would cheer the deplatforming of the people on the far right. How many times do I tell you? It's a package deal. If they go, you go. Not saying there's an equivalence between you two, but there are plenty of people who make the argument that there is an equivalence between the two of you, and that's enough. And that's enough. There's no equivalence between me and Steven Crowder. But some people would make an equivalence between me and Steven Crowder, and that's enough. So it's a package deal. Do you want the freedom or do you not? And I'm telling you, that's how it would be used. If these platforms were around back during the Iraq war days, the Congress people would be berating the social media CEOs for allowing the conversation about the Iraq war, allowing people to say Saddam doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. That's how it would work. Do not ask for overlords, for oligarch censors to come save the day and save the discourse. They are not on your team. Okay. Next. One of the conversations we've been having a lot lately is about the direction of the Republican Party. Um, Post-Trump, they're completely lost. They don't know what to do. Go look at their weak, pathetic attempt to fight back against Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. It was incoherent. They weren't making the lefty argument of like, hey, this should include $15 an hour. Hey, this should include $2,000 checks, not $1,400 checks. They weren't making those criticisms. Their criticisms were, but my deficit and my debt, 
I know I just voted for two other COVID relief bills that added to the deficit and the debt, and I know I added nearly $2 trillion to the deficit and the debt when I supported Trump's tax cuts for the rich. I don't care about those, but I care for, now I care about the deficit. They had no argument. It was pathetic. So what have they done? The same week, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill passed. They were talking more about Dr. Seuss. Why? Because they have nothing except the culture war, because they have zero policies. That's not to say the Democrats are good. They're not. They're a hollowed out shell of themselves from the New Deal era. They're 80% Ronald Reagan, 20% FDR, and then they want to act like they're heroes and act like they're fully FDR. Nonsense. But at least there's something. The Republicans are just, uh, we got nothing. We don't know what to say. Something, something, cancel culture. Something, something, woke mob. Something, something, Dr. Seuss. Here's a great example of exactly that. A politician proposed a bill on the Dr. Seuss thing. Let's watch, and then I'll tell you why this is absurd. Well, a Pennsylvania lawmaker is working to protect children's access to what he calls historic books, including titles by Dr. Seuss that have been targeted by cancel culture. He's introducing the Grinch Act to cut off government funding for agencies that censor books, he says. As we have seen time and time again, the woke horde will target just about anyone, even Dr. Seuss. We must not allow the left to wage further attacks on students' First Amendment rights. Congressman John Joyce joins us now. What kind of reaction have you had to this bill being introduced? Dana, good morning. The reaction has been so positive. You and I realize that the cancel culture is rapidly attacking our American institutions, our libraries, our schools. And like so many, I'm alarmed at the left's attempt to cancel historic books, characters. No one, no one is safe from the woke culture. Okay, Not so Dr. Seuss. What, would this les- what would your legislation do specifically? The Grinch Act would prevent our taxpayers' dollars from supporting states and local governments to ban books. I'm someone who visits the libraries throughout Pennsylvania, my district in South Central and Southwestern Pennsylvania. Dana, yesterday, I was in one of those libraries. They took me into the children's section and showed me the shelf full of Dr. Seuss books. If you find that these books are offensive to your children, then the parents should be the ones who make that decision. Government should not be making that, and federal dollars should not support anyone who bans books. Our First Amendment rights, those of our adults and our children, must be defended. Okay, so then have you had any Democrats uh, agree to sign on to this bill? I think this is a bill that should be able to reach across the aisle. We have to understand that we cannot turn back and ban great historic people, great historic images that are part of our childhood. As a child, my father read to me from Dr. Seuss. I read Dr. Seuss to my children, and now I read it to my granddaughter. There are important lessons in these books, but the parents are the ones who should be guiding the children, not government. We don't need to be woke. That man, I think, is a robot. I think he's a robot. I'm not sure he's human. He is the worst public speaker I've ever seen, and I don't even think it's close. I think that he actually wrote down his response and he was reading on air his response from like a Microsoft Word document that was right in front of him. And he just sounded so uncomfortable and so fake. And like I rehearsed this for an hour and a half last night before the segment. Do you guys think I'm weird? I really hope that you don't think I'm weird, even though I'm really weird. Okay, worst public speaker of all time. But putting that aside, 
Here's why this is beyond silly. His solution to the whole Dr. Seuss thing is this bill. He says this bill makes it so no tax money goes to places that ban books. This wouldn't impact the Dr. Seuss thing even a little bit. The Dr. Seuss thing was Dr. Seuss Enterprises deciding on their own that there were a handful of Dr. Seuss books. I forget how many, three or four, something like that. Meanwhile, there's over 40 Dr. Seuss books total. But they decided, hey, three or four of these, there's parts in here that are uncomfortable and insensitive from a previous generation. So we're going to voluntarily remove these books, or maybe ultimately they'll just tweak some passages or something. But yeah, some of the books, they, you know, some of them describe or show black people as like monkeys or gorillas. Doesn't strike me as crazy to say, hey, maybe we could update this or whatever. And again, the government's not making that decision. Democratic politicians aren't making that decision. The woke mob isn't making that decision. Dr. Seuss Enterprises made that decision on their own. On their own. Now, you guys tell me you believe in the free market. Well, this is the free market doing free market things. It's a company deciding to go in a direction that they want to go in. And again, they're not banning all Dr. Seuss books. They're not removing all 40-plus books. It's just three or four. And my guess is they'll just change some passages and re-release them. It's, this piece of legislation doesn't impact that at all. So he's saying, oh, no tax money to places that ban books. So stop and think about the logic of that. So if some public library or something somewhere um, decides, hey, we're going to remove this book for whatever reason, he says, okay, great. Now I want to defund all of your books and take away all of the tax dollars that go to you. So since you may have removed one book, I will now in response remove all of the books by totally defunding you and making sure you get no tax dollars. So in a way, isn't he even more pro-cancel culture? That's what it seems like to me. Some people say, I want to remove some books, which by the way, I don't agree. I don't think you should remove books, to be clear. But he says, okay, I see you removing some books, and I raise you, I'm now going to remove all of your books and pretend like I'm somehow anti-cancel culture. You're the bigger advocate of cancel culture. You want to defund libraries. So I I think that's absurd. Listen, I... But they're talking about this because they have nothing else. This guy has nothing to say about the $15 minimum wage. He's against it. He has nothing to say about the PRO Act. He's against it. He has nothing to say about the recurring stimulus checks. He's against it. He has nothing to say about expanding health care during a pandemic. He's against even the ACA expansion, never mind a public option, never mind Medicare for all, which is the real answer. They have nothing on policy at all, period. So they're leaning heavily on the culture. Oh, my God, Mr. Potato Head is now Potato Head. Dr. Seuss, and they're banning Dr. Seuss. And what about this thing and this thing? And, by the way, hilarious, we just got the story the other day. Republicans are canceling Lil Nas X because he released a shoe that's like a devil shoe, a Satan shoe. And so they're canceling him. So they're against cancel culture until it's somebody that they disagree with politically, and then they're like, oh, cancel them 100%, no doubt. So you're not principled crusaders. You don't believe in free speech. You don't believe in free expression. You're just weaponizing something for partisan ends. That's exactly what this is. So listen, the Dr. Seuss thing had nothing to do with the government, nothing to do with politicians. There's literally no law that could have stopped Dr. Seuss Enterprises from making that decision. The only thing that could have changed it is if the compilation of the board was different. The makeup of the board was different, and you had people who were like, eh, just leave the books, preserve them. We know it's some questionable stuff in there, but it is what it is. It's historic. Leave it, leave it as it is. That's the only thing that could have changed it. So there's no real tangible way that you could have changed it. 
So to make this a big cancel culture thing when the woke mob had nothing to say, Democratic politicians had nothing to say, it just shows you have nothing. You're scraping the bottom of the barrel. And you're trying to pretend like all the Democrats are like, you know, foaming at the mouth to ban all Dr. Seuss books. Nonsense. None of it is true. None of it is true. And again, they support cancel culture. Don't talk to me about cancel culture unless you're going to advocate for the freedom of Edward Snowden and the freedom of Julian Assange. Canceled people in the country. And a lot of these Republicans were against the pardoning or commuting of Chelsea Manning's sentence. So they're pro-cancel culture. They're so pro-cancel culture, they support the laws that are in, in many states and many localities and cities and whatnot that basically ban criticism of Israel and cut off all government funds if you criticize Israel and sign on to BDS. They love cancel culture. They just want it directed in the direction they want it directed in. All right, next. Rokana went on Fox News, and uh, he did a segment with Matt Gates. Now, the reason um, he's close with the Republican politician Matt Gates is that they've worked together on trying to end war and a number of other things. So here they are talking to giant idiot Brian Kilmeade. And um, I have to say, Roe was getting attacked on Twitter for this and some other things. Let's take a look, and then I'll respond. How do you explain how much you like this guy? You told me off camera. You and, you and Matt get along. We do get along. Uh, we work on common issues. We work to get PAC money out of politics. We both believe that lobbyists shouldn't be running this place. We both believe that we shouldn't be in foreign wars. Obviously, we disagree on issues, uh, but we uh, actually engage in dialogue and we even hang out. Congressman, I don't know if you know it, but uh, Congressman Kohana did not, uh, Rana did not support Donald Trump, and you did. You supported Bernie Sanders. When did you realize you could still work with them, that you, you, know, you came into the same class and you can get some stuff done? Brian, so many of the challenges we face in Washington don't just pit the red team against the blue team. They're generational challenges. How do we ensure that America defeats China to win in the 21st century? How do we build a technical working class of people able to survive? How do we ensure that we don't waste the blood and treasure of our country in wars in the Middle East? And what's unique about this political realignment that I think Donald Trump had something to do with, that Bernie Sanders had something to do with, is that you can actually actually have right-wing populists and left-wing populists working together, right. and sometimes it is the establishment against the rest of us. Ro Khanna has made me a better congressman because he doesn't take money from lobbyists or PACs. Most members of Congress get most of their money from lobbyists, PACs, and special interests because of Ro's inspiration. I'm the only Republican who won't take any lobbyist or PAC. And I, and I think so a lot of times we return the compliment to Matt when we were trying to end our involvement in Yemen. 
Yemen, and when we were trying to make sure that we didn't get into Iran, uh, Matt went against people in his own party, in his own leadership, uh, to stop those wars. And if I was just trying to put together a coalition on the left, we would never have made the progress in Yemen. We would have never made the progress in stopping the intervention in Iran. So uh, people, people said, why are you working with Matt Gates? I said, well, if you care about stopping wars overseas, uh, look at what he's doing. Right, absolutely right. So there's a lot to say about this. Now, Roe was attacked about this on Twitter, and it appears like he's fed up and he snapped, and he basically said in response to somebody, okay, so a 19-year-old from Pennsylvania or South Carolina has to die in a war because you want to be a partisan tribal hack who talks to nobody who you disagree with on anything. And I, I have to say, I love his aggression in that response. Yes, I have criticisms of Ro Khanna, of course. Um, I think that his tactics and strategies, along with all the other Justice Democrats, their tactics and strategies in dealing with Democratic leadership is sad, abysmal, if I'm being honest. But this is not an area of criticism. In fact, on this one, I think he gets it 100% right. So, yeah, it, you can and should work with anybody for your policy ends, even if on other issues these people might be odious. Because Roe's not working with him on the other issues where they disagree. He's working with him on the areas where they agree, where it's his position. His position is ending war. If Matt Gates is convinced to want to try to end wars, of course you work with him. Why wouldn't you? Or do you actually care about ending the wars? Or are you just a you know, virtue-signaling, grandstanding, partisan, tribal hack? And so... They point out, hey, there are many issues that aren't left-right. They're establishment versus anti-establishment. I think that's true. And then, you know, Matt Gates says, well, right-wing populists and left-wing populists can work together. Now, here's where I will caution a little bit, okay? By and large, most of the time, the so-called right-wing populists are fraudulent. They are. You know, Josh Hawley, who positions himself that way, was against the $15 minimum wage. All the Republicans are against the PRO Act which is a pro-union piece of legislation that would help the working class. So you have to call a spade a spade. That's fraudulent. They're being fraudulent. They're not helping workers. There's nothing populist about that. They're fake populists. Now, so they're not, you don't give the so-called right-wing populists more credit than they deserve. That's an important point, okay? But when they do actually agree and their actions back up, that they agree, then you give them credit, because you've got to give credit where credit is due. You've got to be fair. And so I have no doubt that Matt Gates is in favor of ending the war in Afghanistan. I have no doubt that, no doubt that Ro Khan is in favor of ending the war in Afghanistan. And I have no doubt that they're up against, they're fighting against Liz Cheney and, you know, that coalition of establishment Republicans and Democrats that are for the war. Give credit only where it's deserved. And granted, the, the fake populist right ain't really so populist, but every now and then where they happen to be right, like Josh Hawley advocating for the $2,000 check, give them credit. Ending wars, give them credit, as long as they actually do it and they fight for the policy. So, and they did on Yemen, you know, uh, Bernie worked with Mike Lee, Ro Khanna worked with, I guess, Matt Gates on the Yemen thing, on Iran, they worked together, great. So give credit where it's due, but don't give too much credit when it's not due. Don't just fall for the pandering and the virtue signaling about how they're pro-worker if the policies don't actually back it up, okay? And then the final point I want to make is this. Um, 
they bring up like Roe, uh, Matt Gates brings up that Roe convinced him on taking no corporate PAC money and that that's a good thing. So basically like, oh, we got rid of the corruption. That's half true. It's good that these guys take no corporate PAC money. But the real key to actually not be corrupt is to only take small dollar donations. If you only take small dollar donations, that's the real sign of like, no, I'm actually not corrupt in any way, shape, or form, and I'm only going to listen to my donors who are the American people. And unfortunately, I don't know if there's any politicians that only take small dollar donations, um, but there are a number that don't take corporate PAC money, which again is good, but it's really not the end-all be-all in terms of an anti-corruption approach within this current system. So I just wanted to make that point. Anyway, yes, don't be a partisan tribal hack. Work with people as long as they actually agree with you, okay? Sometimes these people on the right say something and they don't really mean it, you know, like they're for workers. They weren't for the $15 minimum wage. They're not for the PRO Act. They ain't for workers. Nonsense. Total nonsense. But on war, they actually happen, some of them happen to agree. And take yes for an answer. That's the only way you're going to get stuff done. And so to go after somebody for working with somebody who agrees with them on an issue, I just, I'll never understand that. And unfortunately, what people do is the classic, like, well, he's like a white supremacist fascist, and so therefore you can't work with him even on an area where you agree, like ending the war. They think Roe is like approving of the fascism by working with him on ending war, and I think that that's a preposterous argument because, oh, oh you're validating him or whatever you know, phrase they use, and it's like, he's a congressman. He's already validated no matter what Ro Khanna says or does. So if you're actually going to work together for positive ends, Bernie Sanders used to work with Ron Paul all the time on areas where they agreed, like civil liberties and like war and like drugs. Take yes for an answer when somebody agrees with you. That's how you get shit done. But see, again, you have to actually want to get shit done. And a lot of the people who are getting mad at Roe don't care about that. They care about their personal purity and virtue signaling all day, and it's useless. All right, next. So we have some big news coming out of Baltimore. Take a look at this. The Hill says the city of Baltimore will no longer prosecute certain low-level crimes, including prostitution, drug possession, and minor traffic violations, State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby announced Friday. The move was unveiled in a press release from Mosby's office as it reported one-year success of policies implemented last March to not prosecute the nonviolent charges amid the coronavirus pandemic. According to the state's attorney's office, last year's decision has resulted in a decrease in arrests, no adverse impact on the crime rate, that's important, and addressed the systemic inequity of mass incarceration. Due to the success of the policies, which were initially enacted as a way to reduce the chance of massive coronavirus outbreaks in prisons or jails, Mosby on Friday announced that the changes would be permanent. Quote, today, today America's war on drug users is over in the city of Baltimore. Mosby said in a statement, we leave behind the era of a tough-on-crime prosecution and zero-tolerance policing and no longer default to the status quo to criminalize mostly people of color for addiction. So, I cannot tell you how much I love this. I love this more, can I, more than I could possibly put into words. Um, 
And here's why. I don't think those things are crimes. I don't think drug use is a real crime. I don't think selling drugs is a real crime. I don't think prostitution is a real crime. Uh, minor traffic violations, I don't think are real crimes. I don't think they're real crimes. I think those laws are goofy. I think they're silly. I think they're burdensome. I think it's the government going too far. And so any step you can make towards making the police a respectable institution, I'm for it. And so, you know, I've said this a number of times, but if police were limited to only, you know, making sure that they go after the rapists and they go after the assaulters and they go after the people doing grand larceny and they go after the murderers, I think they would have a phenomenally high approval rating. One of the main reasons why there's, in some communities, disdain for police officers and it feels like they're occupying them is because they are occupying them and they're going after them for petty, low-level offenses that shouldn't even be crimes. They're not real crimes. It's not really a crime if you're doing some drugs or you're selling some drugs or you're buying some drugs. I don't view that as a real crime. If you can go to the bar at 10 a.m. and get whiskey, which is toxic and poisonous and it's a powerful substance why the hell should you not be able to buy some weed from the corner even cocaine that's a productivity drug you'll be more productive if you do cocaine you'll go start a business you'll you know have a productive 12-hour day those things are not crimes and so this is a giant step towards sanity by the way at the same time that this is happening we just got the news new york is going to legalize recreational marijuana now, the details are a little up in the air. I think it's 21 years old and up is who can purchase it. And I think it's going to take at least two years until it's fully implemented. But apparently Cuomo and the Democrats and the Republicans in New York reached some sort of a deal. And they're going to legalize recreational marijuana. Guys, this is the direction we have to go in. We have to get rid of crimes that are not crimes. You know, stop harassing poor Americans. People who are working class, lower class, minorities poor white people. Just stop harassing people. That's what breeds resentment. That's what leads to a backlash against the system, one of the many things that does that. So, yes, decriminalize all the things that should be decriminalized, legalize all the things that should be legalized, and let's move forward in an enlightened way. Drugs are a freedom issue. You should be able to put in your body whatever you want to put in your body as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And anybody who has a real addiction problem, they should have the option of rehab, and it should be free. It should be part of a Medicare for All system. That's how you approach this stuff, right? That's what I think. By the way, you massively reduce violent crime and you massively reduce disease transmission if you legalize, tax, and regulate not only drugs, but also, like they said, prostitution. When you have that legal tax and regulated, you can have health officials do regular checks and regular tests and you could have rules around it to make sure it's safe sex and all that. It's when you shove it underground that it becomes incredibly dangerous, incredibly dangerous. So the criminalization is unacceptable. And thankfully, Baltimore came to their senses. And gradually, we're slowly but surely moving in this direction across the entire country. But really, it's time at the federal level to act on this. Joe Biden, if he wanted to, could legalize marijuana today. Take it off the Schedule One substances list. That's it. Or functionally decriminalize it. But really, you should legalize tax and regulate it. He could do it today. He doesn't want to do it. He's a drug warrior. He doesn't want to do it. In fact, he was firing people for smoking legal weed in D.C. He's stuck in a previous era. Unfortunately, in some ways, we're really lagging behind. But at least the states and the cities are showing some initiative on this, in part spurred by the coronavirus pandemic. But 
This brings me nothing but happiness, and I hope other places follow suit. Okay, next. This will be the final the day. I find this hilarious. Uh, Brian Kilmeade is going to go after Joe Biden here and accidentally make him sound way more awesome than he is. President Biden's not just picking up where his old boss left off. He is blowing Obama's progressive agenda out of the water. I'm not kidding. Look at what he's done so far. 1.9 trillion stimulus chock full of state subsidies and new entitlements. If your jaw is still on the ground, keep it there because he got a $3 trillion infrastructure plan all ready to go. Some say it's going to be $5 trillion, even though I held up uh, ten fingers, just meaning five. Then he's going to blow up the filibuster, something he's promised he'd never do, to solidify his Democratic power base with H.R. 1. That's going to be a voting thing. So what's after that? Attack the Second Amendment. That was yesterday. Overregulate the energy industry. That was day one. Make D.C. the 51st state. They're talking about that now. Joe Biden wants to change every aspect of American life. I'm not kidding. The way we travel, the way we work, the way we run our businesses, the way we vote, the way we educate our kids. For historical context, we need to go back to the 60s with Lyndon Johnson and the 1930s with FDR. Restoration calls, however, not for changes in ethics alone. This nation is asking for action, and action now. Ours is a time of change, rapid and fantastic change, bearing the secrets of nature. Johnson's Great Society revamped health care, education, welfare, and civil rights. FDR's New Deal overhauled our infrastructure and banking systems, established things like Social Security. Biden's agenda will try to combine the agendas of both presidents and go further left than any administration has gone before. Remember when Ronald Reagan said government is not the solution to the problem? It is the problem? Well, guess what, Joe Biden and big government? They have come here, and it's now our problem in every aspect of our life. This segment was one of the more honest segments from Fox. This is remarkably honest. And I love this because I want to have this debate. I want to have this conversation and I want it to be real. I want the Democrats to embrace the New Deal era. And listen, if Brian Kilmeade is going to be honest and upfront and say, I'm, I endorse the Reagan era, great, let's have this debate. Let's have this discussion because the left is going to win it every single time. Every single time. Because the New Deal era had phenomenal upsides to it. You had post-World War II post the Great Depression, because of the New Deal, because of unionization, because of the government, we had the golden age of economic expansion. And this was at a time when the top marginal tax rate was between 70 and 93%, even under Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, that top marginal tax rate was 93%. So I've been waiting to have this debate for a long time, man. I've been waiting for it. And the thing I love about the right-wing reaction to it is there is no real reaction. They just Say stuff to try to scare you, even though the stuff is not scary. So he's like, there's $1.9 trillion stimulus that Biden did. Ridiculous. Yeah, except what you didn't tell people is that it has over a 70% approval rating. You didn't say that part. 
weird. So you're attacking the stimulus, scaremongering over the price tag, but you don't point out it's actually wildly popular. Because that money, a lot of that money, is going towards bailing out people's pensions, for example, which saves the day. The stimulus checks, which saves the day. Vaccine distribution, which saves the day. I have issues with it. There should have been a $15 minimum wage in there and $2,000 checks. There wasn't. But why would you? You're attacking something that's phenomenally popular. Then he, then he tries to fearmonger over. Now they're going to do a $3 trillion infrastructure bill. Ha! Huh. Trump said repeatedly he wanted to do infrastructure. You didn't have anything to say against him when he said that. Now he didn't do it. But the idea infrastructure is bad. Why is that a bad thing? Our infrastructure used to get a grade of D+. Recently, they upgraded it to like a C. But what, you don't want our infrastructure to get an A++? You don't want it to be the number one infrastructure in the world? I guess you don't want America to be great. I guess you don't want us to be number one in the world. I guess you'd rather us have a crumbling infrastructure. So you can say, oh, we saved money and oh, we watched after the debt and the deficit. <laughs> then he talks about blowing up the filibuster. That would be amazing. Call me crazy, but I think that 51 votes should win in a body of 100. That's called democracy. Listen, I'm, I'll take the reform of the filibuster where they got to do the talking filibuster, but leaving it as is is insane. It's minority rule all day long. So he's in favor of minority rule, which is by definition undemocratic, just to be clear. And then he says, Biden's going to attack the Second Amendment. What, with mild reforms like universal background checks and assault weapons ban and still leaving millions and millions of guns in this country? Are you out of your mind, you hyperbolic moron? That part is totally dishonest. It is. That's totally dishonest the way they say, oh, talk to the Second Amendment. Nonsense. It's called basic regulation. Um, and then finally, the best part, he brings up LBJ and FDR to scare you. It's like, God, these presidents, FDR is ranked as one of the best presidents in U.S. history. He's like, ah, oh, it's going to be like FDR. Ridiculous. You're giving Biden credit here. You don't even realize it. He brings up this quote from FDR. This nation is asking for action and action now. Yeah, that's true. It was true then. It's true now. I don't know if you noticed. We have a pandemic and we have a depression. Nearly 40% of people can't pay their housing bill. We have over $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Nearly 80% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and that was pre-COVID. The top 1% has stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90% from 1974 until today. You're making our case for us. He brings up the LBJ quote. Ours is a time of rapid and fantastic change. Yeah. He brings up the Great Society and the New Deal as if, like, obviously this was negative. He actually admits the new, uh, they established Social Security and redid the banking system, and he acts like that's bad. Son, have you ever seen a poll? Social Security is probably the most popular program in the entire country, maybe only behind Medicare. I'm not sure which is number one. But direct cash to old people so they don't live horrendous lives, who's against that? Well, we have our answer. You're against that. You're against that. And listen, like I said, I want to have this debate every day. I'll debate you all day, every day on this stuff. I'll point to FDR. I'll point to the Scandinavian model. You know, it's called the government taking care of the basics. Every developed country has taxes. What do you want your taxes going towards? You want it to go towards endless war and bailouts for Wall Street and subsidies to ExxonMobil? I don't. My taxes, I want to go towards health care for everybody, college for everybody, paid vacation time, things of that nature, higher wages. That's what I want it going towards. So, again, I want to have this debate, son. Let's debate it all day long. 
Let's talk about the New Deal era versus the Reagan era. Let's do it. Let's talk about his deregulation and tax cuts for the wealthy, who a giant hole in the debt and the deficit, gave all the money to the rich people, deregulated, which led to a crash down the road. This is not a difficult one. This is actually really clear and really obvious. And he's trying to make Biden look bad, but he accidentally makes Biden look worse. So here's the unfortunate ending to this segment, which is Biden's not as good as LBJ or FDR. He's not. Biden is 80% Ronald Reagan, 20% FDR, or if I want to be more kind, 70% Ronald Reagan, 30% FDR. He still buys into the neoliberal corporatist worldview, which is why all of his major policies to this point and continuing forward are sort of like splitting the difference. And they're, you know, one-time shots. It's not a recurring payment. It's a one-time direct check. Uh, so these things are not, he's not in favor of a public option. He's not in favor of Medicare for all. He's in favor of expanding the Affordable Care Act. So he's still accepting the premise of neoliberal corporatism, and he's trying to do as much within that context and those confines as possible, but he ain't no FDR, he ain't no social democrat, he ain't no new dealer. I wish he was. Okay. All right, we're done, guys. I love you, baby. I'll see everybody on Wednesday, same time, same place, 10 a.m., peace.